0: Jesus responded by telling still more stories. God's kingdom, he said, is like a king who planned a big wedding banquet for his son. He told his servants to go out and call in all the invited guests, and they wouldn't come. So he sent another round of servants out and instructed them to tell the guests, look, everything is on the table. The prime rib is ready for carving. Come to the feast. They just shrugged their shoulders and went off. One to weed his garden, another to work in his shop. The rest, with nothing better to do, beat up on the messengers and killed them. The king was outraged. He sent his soldiers to destroy the thugs and level their city. Then the king said to his servants, Look, I have a whole wedding banquet prepared and no guests. The ones I invited weren't up to it. So he sent his servants out to the busiest intersections in town and said, Invite everyone you meet to the banquet. So they went out to the streets, and they invited everyone they could lay their eyes on to the feast. And the banquet was on. All the places were filled. When the king entered, he looked at the scene, and he spotted a man who wasn't properly dressed. He said, friend... How dare you come in here looking like that? The man was speechless. The king said to his servants, Get him out of here fast. Tie him up and ship him to hell. Make sure he doesn't get back in. That's what I mean when I say, Many are invited. Only a few get in.
1: That will leave a mark, as they say. And it should. Can you imagine that being heard? That's Jesus in a parable in Matthew 22, speaking to a whole group of people. And we don't often acknowledge those kind of harsh words, but to just hear them in that way, it's kind of gripping. And the question that really comes out of that is, what did Jesus mean? Why did Matthew record those words? Who is Jesus in this story addressing? And how does this apply today to my life? What I think is really interesting when we look at these kind of words and these kinds of expressions to these kind of stories of Jesus, they have the same kind of force when you hear them like that to kind of hit us in the head like a, with a two-by-four. And I think Jesus purposely does that. He doesn't do it to try and bring guilt and shame. It's not, it's not His purpose to, to tell us ought and what we should and ought do. He basically is saying, this is the way reality is. Every person in this room, every person who heard that story has a choice, has been given a will by God to respond to the reality what you've just heard. Let's pray. Father, as we go to prayer, I um, want to ask that you would allow your Holy Spirit to take our hearts and make them open, God. It's even um, a work that you have to do sometimes to say, open our hearts to really understand what you want to say to me this morning. So Spirit of God, come, we pray. In freshness, in life, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to do as we begin, again, is to just pause for a second and give us a little bit of perspective because we're walking to the cross and and I think it's good for us to understand what this week looked like. It was Passover week. The city was crowded. It was filled both with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles all piling into the city. So the roads were just jam-packed, people pilgrimaging from the ends of the earth, so to speak, to celebrate this incredible, great festival, this Time of celebration of all of God's people around the great mercy and grace that was displayed through Moses and the people as they were released from from Egypt and that Passover event with the Lamb um, that night when the angel came and spared those who recognized and acknowledged that they needed this sacrifice, the blood of that sacrifice on the very doorpost of their house. So here's the final week. Friday before Good Friday, okay? Jesus is coming into town, pilgrimaging in with the rest, and He's teaching, and He's going through Jericho. He goes through Jericho. He finally comes to this little place where Mary and Martha are living, and they're mourning. They're upset because a few days before that, Lazarus has died. They come to that place. It's probably Friday afternoon. Jesus goes to where He is, and He raises Lazarus from the dead. That happens on Friday. That next day is sabbath day so it's a day of rest it's a day of their sunday in that middle eastern jewish faith and then The next day is Sunday. It's the day that he then Jesus triumphantly enters into the city. And as he's entering into the city, this is kind of dramatic action where he's proclaiming himself the Messiah. And that same day, what would happen, I call it presentation day, people were bringing their lambs to the priests in the temple in order to bring this lamb that they would show would be spotless and, and would be worthy in a sense to take their place as a sacrifice. Jesus the same day is making his way into the city going to the temple. He comes to the temple. He can't believe what he sees. The very people that God wanted to reach out to, the broken, the poor, the Gentiles, those who were furthest from him, that the Jewish nation was to be a blessing to, those in those outer courts can't even get close because it's just filled with the marketplace. And Jesus goes home that day. He comes back the next day. And on that next day, as he comes in, they see the swig tree that had been cursed the day before and, and, and they come in and they see the temple and he comes in and cleanses the temple. And so now that Monday, he goes back and Tuesday as he comes in, it's what I call Prove Yourself Day. Jesus comes to teach and to help people understand why he's here. And as he does so, there's all kinds of controversy. And this is the day that we're at. Jesus, through these dramatic actions, coupled with the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, um, people begin to look and go, this is the Messiah, and they start to shout Hosanna, and the, the religious leaders are upset. They're angry because he doesn't necessarily say directly. He does it through these parabolic actions and dramatic forms. He indirectly says he's Messiah, but the people confess with their lips that he's the one. And they say, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, I won't, because if I did, the rocks in the hills would shout out. So powerful is the presence of God in him. And the religious, religious leaders are outraged. They um, are fearing his power. They are embarrassed by his teaching as he exposes their hypocrisy. They challenge his authority and they begin to ask him, what are your credentials? Who's given you authority? Where are your ordination papers? All these things in Jesus. Instead of answering that, he says, let me tell you some stories. And he tells them three stories. And we've looked at the first two of these trilogy of parables. Now we're going to look at the third one. Matthew puts three in order in a way three testify well to the very presence of who God is. And he uses these three, in a sense, to reveal to us and to these people the gravity of the refusal of acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior and the rejection of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes inviting you and me into this kingdom. And so the structure of the parable is really interesting. So it's quite simple, and we'll look at this right now. Verses 1-4, through we're going to look at how this parable kind of breaks down, is an invitation which has been rejected. Verses 5 through 7, the rejectors are judged. As you go on through verses 8 through 10, new guests are invited. And then there's this addition, and we'll talk about it for a moment when we get into this. Verses 11 through 14, the intruder is expelled. It's a very interesting twist. And I'll end this whole thing with just a few observations. So the invitation rejected, verses 1 through 4. Again, if you listen to the New International Version, verses 1 and 2, Jesus spoke to them again in parables. He's just basically saying this is a custom of Jesus. In fact, he has just spoken a couple of parables. He now starts into this third one. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And again, Jesus, with incredible brilliance, captures what it's like to know, to live, and to experience the ongoing presence of God. He's trying to give them a story so they will understand how incredible it is that God in His presence has come to these people in order to invite them to live within His rule, within His reign, to experience Him in His fullness. And so he says the kingdom of heaven is like the greatest celebration imaginable. Nothing would compare in those days to a king throwing a wedding party for his son. In fact, the word here you'll see about three four times in this passage, wedding banquet, wedding feast, it's interchangeable. It doesn't show you in the English language, but in the Greek it moves from that which is plural and singular, and there's a purpose for that. It's because in that day when they would hold a wedding banquet or feast, and especially a king... People, as they would come, would come not just for a banquet and then go home. They don't fly in for the night and fly out. They come from sometimes a distance and they'll stay for three to seven days and throughout that whole time, it's a huge, grand celebration, a time of just getting together with people and stuffing yourself. I was in Ethiopia and it was the first time I did one of these mission trips where I went there and they had asked me to... I'd come in that night. We had driven quite a distance. It was into the western part of Ethiopia where there was very... Few, um, In fact, the land, in a sense, was just being settled in some ways. They were kind of civilized in many ways. And as we came there, there were just a couple of churches in the area, and they told me that night that you're going to preach the next day. The churches are going to come together, and, and we'd like you to preach. And so I said what any preacher would do, well, how long do you expect me to preach? And they said, oh, it doesn't matter. You can go as long as you want. I'm going, that's great. if wish you guys felt that way. Kind of preacher's dream. Well, the whole purpose of it, as I found out later, was these people were walking for two to three days to get there. And when they get there, they're expecting to stay two, three, four days. And so the whole day is given over to what's happening within the celebrations of that community. Well, that's what's going on. Can you imagine the celebration and joy? Such a party would be. The wealthiest, most powerful man in the universe, in their universe, putting on an indescribable feast or feast To the most honored and loved person in their universe, in the king's universe, his son, a wedding feast, to the coming king, the heir apparent. So verse 3 is very interesting. As he says, he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. this is a big deal in the time of Christ. Such a feast would be planned far in advance and people would be given plenty of notice. It's it's very similar to what we would do today. As people are getting busier and busier, you send out what? Save the date cards, right? And in that day and that culture, in order for people to be able to pull away, to spend a week to celebrate, the messengers would go out to those who had been chosen and selected and they would get the save the date message. This feast is coming. This time of celebration is coming. There will come, and when that comes, you are to enter into it and celebrate and give yourself to it. Can you imagine the honor of getting an invite? Can you imagine someone showing up in your town and in you in, in this area and the servant coming and saying, hey, I'm looking, for, I'm looking for Kevin Meyer. I want to let him know the king has invited him to the celebration. I mean, what an incredible honor that would be. As you experience this 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 thrill of being invited, so much an honor I'd probably you know, you, you're the talk of the town and then you'd probably talk it up around the town, right? But here's what's interesting. Here's the catch. As Jesus comes to him and gives these invites, this master storyteller, what he wants to do is capture for them the best that life could offer was before them. This is what the kingdom is like. And yet, if you look at verse 4, as they hear, or verse 3, the very last part of verse 3, a shock goes through the crowd. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but catches, But they refused to come. They're hearing this story. And they're, There's no way. I mean, if you had an all expense paid trip all the way to England to be at the wedding for a week, you'd probably go. No one in their right mind would refuse this invitation. And I thought of that and I wrote those words in my own message here. It it reminded me of when I was in theology class and we were studying this Dutch theologian, Burkhauer, when it came to the idea of sin. He was trying to explain that sin is just basically irrational. He said, just think about it this way. You're placed in a perfect garden with perfect relationship and you have all these perfect things around you and why in the world would you do anything to make it imperfect? Think of it this way. Anytime the invitation of God by the Holy Spirit comes to your heart and begins to knock on your heart and begins to, to, to call you, to woo you, loving you, to move, to do something that he's, he's leading you to do, He's asking you to enter in more fully into the kingdom of God, anytime you refuse, that would be what rather irrational. They're thinking he's got to be out of his mind. These people are out of their mind. The invitations come. I mean, why aren't they going? But they refuse. And I look at this. The king is incredibly kind. The kind of God that we have um, so grotesquely um, revealed and in, 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 in stereotyped in our world today of this God who's angry, who's going around, just can't wait to kind of just hit you with his anger is just so grotesquely wrong. This king is incredibly kind. This picture that Jesus gives of God is a God who is patient, who is gracious. He's no evil tyrant. He's not a Gaddafi. He's not a Kim Jong-il who, at the slightest defense, wipes you out. Do you catch that? Over and over again, verse 4 tells us this king, out of incredible love, he sent, it says in verse 4, some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. And the word dinner is an interesting word here, because in the Greek, it's not the word for the, the evening meal. It's the word for the brunch. so it's, it's the breakfast meal is what it literally means. In that day, you would have two meals. You would work like crazy when you get up in the morning, and then you would have a meal, and then you would work, and then you would have a meal. It was this first meal. Really, it was the idea is it's the feast is beginning. The very first brunch that kicks it all off is starting. And here's the incredible love of God once more displayed as Jesus shares it in this story. The king actually sweetens the pot. He not only sends more messengers who come out and say that the first banquet is beginning, the first dinner to the whole feast celebration starting, he actually gives them the menu. Look at that, if you would. The words are important here. He says, he says my oxen and the fattened cattle have been butchered and everything's Ready? It would be unimaginable in that culture where when you would have normally a feast and you would have a feast, you would actually have goat or you would have in some ways sheep or lamb would be what you would eat. To eat oxen or beef, to have prime rib or steak. I mean, you would go, I just want to go for the taste of it. And what he kind of does here, if you look at this in verses three and four, he says to those who have been invited. This ties into this last expression. Many are invited and few chosen. You have to kind of watch this. So please, we're going to kind of go through this. There's a lot to cover. I, I just ask you to hang with me. He says in verses 34, to those who have been invited, there was a save the date, a preliminary invitation. Some were chosen to receive these save the date cards many months before the feast. It's beginning to resonate in their hearts what the story is about. Israel, God's chosen, had been given save-the-date cards. They had been told long before everyone else as a nation, He selected a man, Abraham. And out of this land of Mesopotamia, He chose and He brought Abraham out and He said to your descendants, I will bless you to be a blessing to the world. That's what I'm going to do for you. And out of you will come a blessing to all people. I'm going to prepare you for someday the great kingdom and the rule and expression of God for all people to come. And then He chooses Moses and saved the date sent to Moses and the people of Israel. See, they are brought out of Egypt. And again and again throughout the history of the people, servants come, actions occur, the save the date sent, all hoping that at some point when the sun arrives, the banquet begins, the feast starts, they'll say, let me in. I'm on board with my whole life. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus begins to share with them the menu. They see the menu. They see people come who don't deserve to come into the kingdom at all. They see these people who have wasted their life through their choices, or by choices done upon them that they have made. All these different people who are broken, who are who need healing, who who can't even get into the inner courts of the temple. These people who are Gentiles who don't—they're flocking around Jesus, and he begins to forgive them. He actually heals some. The menu of God of the eternity of this life-giving God, this heaven. Is he invading earth and they see it with their own eyes. Do you get the picture? And so this, this picture is mounting with Jesus. The kingdom has dawned. The menu of what the ruler, what the rule under God is now being seen. There's forgiveness and healing and reconciliation. There's deep intimacy with God. There's an ability to have deep intimacy with your husband or your wife or your children or your neighbors your ability to really live at a level that was meant for heaven even now and forever and so the next verse um, begins to make even um, greater sense jesus in a sense in this part begins to retell the parable the second parable where you look remember back in that parable in chapter 21 verse 41 at one point it says These people deal with the the son of the the tenant owner and they they kill him. And he says, let the wretched come to a wretched end. That's what happens here. There's judgment in verses 5 through 7 and through 8 through 10. There's replacement. Those who were given save the dates are judged. Those who are open to coming to the banquet replace them. So verses 7, verses 5 and 6. They paid no attention, went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. There's basically two reactions. There's really three reactions when Jesus shows up. The first reaction are the people who really just desperately know that they need God. They've blown it. They will do anything. They recognize the only way they get in is by the mercy and grace of God. And then there's another group of people who hear that and they're not too... You know, they kind of go, oh, that's interesting. And they, they go, I, I've got business expense reports to deal with, or I've got the farm. And, and they walk off. And then there's another group who's affronted. I can't believe these no good. They've done nothing to deserve it. I've been living my life for God. I've been giving my money to God. I, you know, it's all about me and what I've done. Look, God. And God comes to them and offends them. He may offend you because all your good works mean nothing in the eyes of God. They're filthy rags. The only ones that come and are invited are the ones who just receive it. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But here's verse 6. Some seize them. So there's two reactions. There's indifference and there's hostility. The indifference is people who pass them by with selfish, mundane reasons. And those who have this sense of hostility are the ones who mistreat and they actually go and kill because they are so offended by their own pride is so offended. So verse 7 is what the king, it says here in the story, the king was enraged. You either walk in the love of God through surrender or you stand outside and you experience the wrath through your own choices. And so he says the king was enraged. He sent his army or a force and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Again, it reminds you of 21, chapter 41. See, these two parables that that were told before begin to fit into the story. At some point, the king's patience grows thin and he brings judgment upon them. Again, if you remember the story before Jesus in the parable that we looked at last week alludes to what will happen. At one point, he says they took the son, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, which is a prophetic allusion to what would happen to Jesus. They would take him out of the city and put him on a cross. He does something really interesting here. He makes one other prophetic allusion. Remember, they thought he was when they said, who is this Jesus? They said he's a prophet. Catch this. Jesus again alludes to what will happen if they remain on this rebellious course. Their natural choices will bring them into such a... If you have have authority issues with God, you're going to have authority issues with others. So Jesus is saying, you have authority issues with God and me, you're going to have authority issues with Rome, and you just wait. By the consequences of your own rebellion, watch what will happen. In a sense, he makes this illusion. The army was sent and destroyed those murders and burned their city. In, In AD 70, some one generation, 40 years after Jesus was put on a cross, Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, with an army of people, marched into Jerusalem and conquered the city. He murdered thousands within Jerusalem and threw them over the walls of the city. He marched through the land of Israel, murdering thousands more until it finally ended in that final fatal stand at Masada, where the people, those Jewish people, actually murdered, you know, committed suicide. So when Rome finally came in there and conquered it, they found them all dead. Josephus was a historian. He's a Jewish historian, but he was a a a a historian who had been appointed by Rome writes as an eyewitness to what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. He says this. The fateful day had arrived, the tenth month of Elul. Now, you've got to catch this. The very day which previously the temple had been burned by the king of Babylon. According to Josephus, when God judged before through Babylon, it's the same day. One of the soldiers neither awaiting orders nor filled with horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse. This is Josephus. He's not even a believing Jew. Moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber, hoisted it up by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through a golden window, and when the flame arose, a scream as poignant as the tragedy went up from the Jews, now that object which they had guarded so closely was going to ruin and while the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, Josephus writes, children and old people, lady and priest were massacred. The emperor had ordered the entire city and sanctuary to be razed to the ground, except only by the highest towers in that part of the wall that enclosed the city on the west. And Jesus is saying to them, stop the error of your ways. If you would just surrender your life to this will of God and you would begin to stop moving from rebellion with me, you'll find the rebellion with others will come to a point where it will cease and you won't even have, through your own actions, this kind of course take place in 70 A.D. That's powerful. And God wasn't the one. It wasn't God bringing the army. Their actions allowed it, and God allows that to happen. And God, through Jesus, is patiently coming again and again, even through Jesus, when He goes up on a cross, cries out to them and says, Father, forgive them, for a whole lot of them don't even know what they're doing. And the rejecter says, Jesus, are judged. And verses 8 through 10 is interesting because now there's a wedding that has to occur. And the king wants to throw a party Heaven, this life that God calls us to live with Him right now, which will go on forever, He wants people to be be flocking to Him. He wants right now, this day, people all around here to begin to experience the life that comes from Him. He wants all of us to begin to understand what it means to have heaven invading our lives where the Spirit of God begins to come and begins to lead us and direct us where the Spirit of God begins to change and transform our very character so that we become like Him. And as we live that out, we experience this wedding banquet even now until we get to heaven. We begin to experience the brunch until the great meal. And so he's calling people. He says, this is Jesus, catch this. Their eyes are kind of wide open. Jesus says, God, He will replace those guests invited who refuse to attend. And if you choose to say no to God, God will just look for someone who's willing. So verses 8 and 10, the king's determined to celebrate. He says in verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet's ready, but those I've invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went into the streets and gathered all the people they could find. The bad as well as the good in the wedding hall was filled with guests. And in their minds, they can see Jesus throughout the last three years going everywhere throughout Israel, looking for the broken, the lost, those who seem far away, inviting them in because those who were invited, who had to save the date cards, refused to come. And the idea of this story is that you're to go to the crossroads, the forks in the road, the street corners, wherever people gather and invite them to the feast. You go to the highways and byways, the shopping malls, the movie theaters, to the bars during happy hours, to Starbucks during book readings, everywhere you can imagine, political conventions. Go anywhere and everywhere. Invite anyone and everyone. In a sense, go to the whole world and tell them this incredibly good news that you've been invited to the party of a lifetime and a party forever with god because i want my wedding hall packed jam-packed and filled i want every mansion that i make in eternity to be filled isn't that cool good or bad and then we read this last part, verses 11-14, which is a very interesting idea. The intruder is expelled. You would in some ways think it would stop there. And many commentators have a hard time with these next few verses. They go, Jesus probably told this parable, but Matthew, because he wanted people years later to understand in the church, you know, all these things, I just go baloney. Jesus was an itinerant preacher, and itinerant preachers, I can just tell you as a preacher, when you speak a lot, you use a lot of the same stories, and you can, you can weave them to the ways you want, you can combine them how you want. I think Jesus, an incredible master storyteller, is looking at these people, telling them parable upon parable. In this last parable, he wants to make it very clear that those of you who got to save the date card, even though you're among the many, doesn't mean that you'll be among the few. And so, verse 11 and 12. When the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? Friend, he says. You ought to note that. Friend. How did you get in here, friend, without wedding clothes? The man was Speechless. Someone got in who wasn't supposed to, and there was a sense of shock. You can just sense the shock. Some commentators get all hung up on whether the king was to provide the clothes, or if they were out in the street corners, how they get back to get the proper wedding clothes. You know, I don't think Jesus is into that. I think he's just saying, here's the point. They didn't have the proper clothes. But what we know is this, the king could spot it clearly, right away. And the person stood out from the rest. and when he was confronted, The man was speechless and he had no defense. He was guilty. He knew it in his heart. So verses 13 and 14, Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus says, Listen, folks. Listen, those of you who have gotten saved the date cards. For many have been invited, but few are chosen. Which makes you go, oh, what's this all about? Oh, and the people get into predestination. Oh, you know what? Don't even go there. That's not what Jesus is really getting into. The point is simple and powerful. Even though he was invited, he was not dressed for the occasion. He was thrown outside, expelled as an intruder. He was a wedding crasher and not the lovable Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson. For those of you who are younger. Jesus refers to the Jews here and He makes it very clear that though many had been called and invited, there were only a few who will prove it through their life that they have received this grace and this grace is transforming their life. It will be a few who will be blessed, so much blessed that they will actually turn around and their lives because of this incredible blessing will bless others. You didn't get a save-the-date card, he says to the Jews, so that you could become proud of the fact and go around and tell everybody in the town, guess what? I know the king. I'm pretty special. No one gets a save-the-date card except by the choice and will of God who out of blessing says, I give it to you so you can be blessed and bless others. In fact, I think it's really interesting. You should read through this verse 14. He says, Many are invited through grace, but only a chosen few by faith live in this transforming grace. And God knows it and sees it. So let me share with you just a few observations as we'll close on these. And they all fall, really, these three parables that He just told. This, this verse 14 is a summary in one sense of all of them. Eugene Peterson says that many get invited, but only a few make it. And what he means by make it, he means make it into the kingdom of heaven. My living Meyer paraphrase is this. Many are invited through his grace, but only a chosen few live by faith in his grace. That kind of transforming life where you have new clothes, a new kind of righteousness. So the first thing is the invitation of God is an invitation of grace. It's as simple as that. It's totally grace. He comes wide-armed, open-hearted, generous and free, saying, anyone, everywhere. In fact, if you look at verse 8, it says, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to get to come. And the word deserve here is very interesting. He's not talking about moral purity. He's not talking that they were good enough, religious enough, or holy enough, or they had given enough or done enough. It's merely because they refused the invitation. That's simple yet. Grace was given, and they said, you know, thank you. But I don't think I need it. I'm pretty good on my own. If I'm going to bet, I'm just going to bet that someday when I stand before God, He's going to go, yeah, you really try to live a good life. And He's saying, no, you know what? There is a recognition and acknowledgement like those who are lepers who felt outside, those who are prostitutes who felt so morally impure, those who were the tax collectors who had betrayed the, 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 the religious system so greatly that those people thought the only way I'd get in is by the mercy and grace of God. And if I could just throw myself at your feet, Jesus, and somehow you had a way to make the Father let me in, would that be good enough? And Jesus goes, that's it. The invitation is just invitation of grace and grace alone. And it takes faith. It takes your trust to believe, not in your own good works and all that you can do. It takes trust to believe that this God loved you so much, He would send His Son, and in His Son, you would have life. And verses 9 and 10 make that abundantly clear. Go anywhere and everywhere. Find anyone and everyone, whether good or bad, and invite them in. And so the question that I just want to ask you, the observation that I look here is, you know, it is all about grace. And if you come to a place where you recognize and acknowledge in your own life that you cannot get in, but you need to say, I just want to receive the invitation. The Spirit of God, even right as, I'm, as I'm speaking right now, might be actually knocking on your heart and saying, would you, would you open your heart to my love? You may need to come to a place where you just forgive yourself. Because even that is a sense of pride. So the invitation is the invitation of grace. Here's the second thing I want you to know, just observation. The invitation of God is often passed by. There are lots of different people. Like I said, there's a whole group that just they would throw themselves at His feet saying, if you can get in by your mercy or grace, that's great. There's a whole group of people that when Jesus came and talked to it didn't get hostile and didn't get mad. They just yawned. They heard this incredible news, this incredible great celebration of God's life and experience with Him that you could actually enter into by His invitation. And when they heard it, they went, eh, it's good, but you know what? i got expense reports to do. I mean, I, I use that because I, I hate doing expense reports. You know, if anybody, you know. Eh, yeah, that's really good. But yeah, i got some lawn to cut. There's lots of ways to pass it by it's just all you have to do to pass by the entering into this incredible kingdom life of God and i'm not even saying here not uh, this is not necessarily even about eternity but the kingdom life of God that you enter into is the expression that jesus says goes into eternity by the way you respond and so when you respond to this life of God and the invitation of the spirit and you respond to it you begin to experience God in these new and these fresh ways is incredible Ways that he, But you can get preoccupied in life. You can get so busy doing your work and get so busy doing your own stuff that you just continually ignore the, the invitation of God that says, you know, I want you to step out in this area. Here's something I want you to do. So you experience more of my life and my kingdom. I remember as I was listening this week um, just about how easy it's to chase after things that we think are really good and miss it all. I was uh, listening to historian Doris Kearns Goodwin who was... Um, had, had done a study on American presidents, and she actually uh, wrote the memoirs and had some insights into LBJ. Lyndon Johnson, she was the biographer. She was asked to be his biographer. And she writes this, From the surface, Lyndon Johnson should have everything in life to feel good about his last years. So she was with him in his last years. Should have everything in life. In a sense, he had been elected to presidency, highest office in the nation. He had all the money he needed to pursue leisure activity he wanted. He owned a spacious ranch in the countryside, a spacious penthouse in the cities, sailboats, speedboats. He had servants to answer any whim. He had a family who loved him deeply. And she writes this with a sense of angst. And yet years of concentration solely on his work and individual success meant that in his retirement he could find no solace in his family, in recreation, in sports, or in hobbies. He couldn't live anywhere else. It was almost as if the hole in his heart was so large that even the love of a family without work could not fill it. And as his spirit sagged, his body deteriorated until, I believe, she says, he slowly brought about his own death. And listen to these words. And those last years, he said, was so sad as he watched the American people look toward a new president and forget him. He spoke with immense sadness in his voice, saying, maybe... Listen, maybe he should have spent more time with his children and their children in turn. But it was too late. Despite all the power, all the wealth, he was alone when he finally died. She writes, his ultimate terror realized. Talk about through your own choices putting yourself in a place where your hands are tied and being thrown into an outer darkness of your own choices. You can pass by God when he's here inviting you into his kingdom. And the last thing is this, the invitation of God truly received. When it's truly received, you say, yeah, I want to go, transforms you. It transforms you. The simple point of verses 10 through 14 that Jesus was getting across is grace is not merely a gift. It is a grave responsibility. When a person has an encounter with the living God, life changes. When you are adopted in the family, you begin to look like your parents, in a sense, by behavior and actions. Your life is transformed. An encounter with God through Jesus, clothes a person with a new desire for purity, a new hunger for righteousness, a new thirst for that which is eternal. It begins to do away with this big need to judge others and this big need to make people feel guilty. It just begins to do something in you that you could not do in yourself. And the parable has nothing to say about the kind of physical clothing clothes that we wear here in church. Nothing but everything to say about the kind of character and spiritual clothes that begins to dress the very inner part of who we are. So that Paul points out in Colossians 3, verses 12-14, through Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, listen to this, as God's chosen people, how do you know the many are chosen? Because they begin to dress by the power of the Holy Spirit like Him. Through their choices, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on this one incredible coat of love, which just kind of makes the whole thing look good. C.S. Lewis talks about in his Mere Christianity about people, you know, kids, you know, one of the things they do is they start putting on the clothes of their parents and, and the whole idea is that someday they'll grow up to be like their parents. They'll grow into their clothes. I want to tell you, that's what Jesus is saying. If you have been invited into the blessing of God, you may be in a place where you're starting to put on compassion. You've never put it on, but they're like they're really big. But through your choices, as you begin to listen to the Spirit of God, and it's not about your pride, it's not about you've been chosen, it's about the fact that you've been blessed by His compassion. You've been touched by His kindness. You begin to put on compassion and kindness. And over time, as the power of the Holy Spirit leads you and you respond to His invitation, which is grace, through faith you begin to grow into it and someday someone looks and go you, you are so compassionate wow is that happening in your life the point is the king can look and see your heart it's not about me it's not my job to try and do this my job just to tell the reality and ask you to say do you want to live in it or not i just love god in the way he works Many are invited, but chosen reveal it through their life. Jesus says something interesting. I said I'd share with this. I'll close on this and we'll go to communion. The king asks, how did you get in here without clothing? Wedding clothing, friend. There are two other places in Matthew that's used. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 13, at the very end of the story, they're complaining about the guys who got all this grace and were paid the same amount, even though they came the last minute or hour while they worked the whole day. And the owner looks at him and says, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? One other place this word is used in Matthew chapter 26, verse 50. As Jesus is being arrested, Judas comes up to him. Jesus puts his arms around him and he gets a kiss on the cheek and he says, friend, Jesus says, do what you came for. I just want to share with you, because you've grown up in a church, because maybe you have um, attended often, because maybe you've served with someone in ministry, because you have given money to... Because you've been among the many doesn't mean you're one of the many. That's, that's the whole point. And no one calls the enemy. It's friend. Today, it's an opportunity to respond to the grace of God. And just open your heart to Him.